If you don't mind, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 6 through 11 tonight. As Pastor Franks uh, mentioned earlier, we are so thankful that we can come together as the people of God to end this Lord's day singing praises to his name and hearing his word spoken over us. Last week, Pastor Mike Heron introduced us to our new series, Passing on the Faith, a charge from the father in the faith to a son in the faith for a church to hold fast, hold on to the faith. Last week, uh, Pastor Mike, he exhorted us as a church that as we seek to pass the faith on to the next generation, we must be faithful to gospel ministry. And he showed us two ways from the text to do this. We were, are to remain faithful to God's truth and we are to remain faithful to his church. If we are to remain faithful to God's truth, we need to know how to use God's law, particularly God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, properly. We can't just go rogue. We can't just look within to say, this is how we should use these Ten Commandments. This would be devastating not only for our faith, our personal walks with Jesus, but also for our church and the next generation. So what is God's vision for his law? Tonight's text will give us insight to that very question. So before we open up God's word and hear what he has to say to us tonight, let's ask the Holy Spirit for help in this time. Father in heaven, thank you that we have a relationship with you through your son. Thank you for another time to sit underneath your word to hear your word to us. Holy Spirit, help us understand your word this evening and give us the power to live it out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Read with me now 1 Timothy 1. We're going to look 6 through 11. We'll read 6 through 11. Certain persons, by swerving from these, and these Pointing back to verse 5, uh, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This is the reading of God's holy word. Amen. Do you know in the midst of all the differences in the world, there is one unifying factor among all mankind, no matter age, stage, economic status, race, there is a unifying thread. 
And that is we all struggle. We all have struggles. The reality is seen in this often used phrase, nobody's perfect. Have you heard that before? Have you shared that with someone before, whether it's a, a, a child forgetting a homework assignment, whether it's unintentionally hurting a friend, whether it's just failing to keep a promise that you had made before God. We have all received this phrase, nobody's perfect. Although this statement can, can sometimes be, it can come off trite or superficial, there is truth in this. Since Genesis chapter 3, we have all been plagued with this harmful disease called sin. Because of sin, everyone in the pew, everyone has been touched by sin, by the struggles, whether it be anger, envy, lust, pride. Sin has touched every one of us. And somehow, you have either sinned against someone or been sinned against. You have hurt someone or someone has hurt you. Now, most of us think, and obviously there may be some truth to this, but most of us assume that we have a clear understanding of what right and wrong is and that we're able to distinguish between righteousness and unrighteousness. But because of the sin that indwells in us, there are two problems. First, sometimes we seek to justify our own sinful thoughts, actions, and feelings because of circumstances. He made me do it. If you knew how they treated me, you would agree with how I responded to them. Other times, those same thoughts, feelings, and actions are just, they fit in a little bit of a gray area. Is it okay that I'm constantly checking my email? For some reason, I'm always finding myself clicking on this button to check my email. Is it fine that I crave people's approval as I look to social media? I never would do this. But is it okay if my boss asks me to do something that goes against Christian principles? I wouldn't do it, but because I need to obey my boss, is that okay to do? How do we answer these questions? Better yet, who decides if your thoughts, feelings, and actions are right or wrong? In a world that's filled with as many opinions as there are people, and Mix that with a heart that is always wanting to justify itself. Where do you and I go to find truth about our behavior? Should we run to the latest influencer, the life coach, a blogger, a podcaster? Where do we go to know if what I'm, I am doing is righteous or unrighteous? Paul shows us in this text that in God's goodness, he has not left us to figure this out on our own. I would like to submit to you tonight from this text that God has given you his law, his moral law, the Ten Commandments, so that you are able to distinguish in your life and in the life of all those around you what is righteous living and what is unrighteous living. God has given us an objective, measurable standard, not based on your feelings, 
not based on your circumstances, not uh, based on which side of the bed you rolled up out of this morning, not based on any type of new philosophy, but based on his character. It is important for you as a believer, for us as a church, and for the next generation to have a healthy biblical understanding of God's purpose for his moral law. Because this plays a vital role in the health of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what I want to do, I want to ask three questions from the text. And with each question, I want to give a, a principle or application. Why? This isn't just for them then, for the church at Ephesus, but this has everything to do with us sitting in this pew tonight. This has everything to do with First Presbyterian Church in 2023. So let's get it. First question. Why is Paul concerned about reminding Timothy of the proper use of the law? And why should we here at First Presbyterian Church be concerned as well? So Paul is concerned about the proper use of the law because in the church at Ephesus, there were a group of false teachers who were using the law improperly. Like poison to the body, this improper use was harming the church. Verse 8, Paul says to Timothy, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Paul is about to contrast the proper use of the law with the false teacher's improper use of the law. So how were they using it? Paul uh, articulates this earlier on. Rather than using God's law to instruct the people of God, they were using it for myths, genealogies, vain discussions. Verse 4, when Paul's charging Timothy, he says, devote, tell them to devote, not to devote themselves to myths, endless genealogies, which promote speculations. And later on in verse 6, he says, these teachers have wandered away into vain discussions. Now, this speculation, this nonsense would be okay if these false teachers huddled up, went over into that little corner and pow out with themselves. But listen to what Paul says they are desiring in verse seven. Paul says that these false teachers who didn't know the law and didn't know what they were saying about the law desired to be teachers of the law. Paul sniffed out a problem. This he saw would be problematic for the church if this continued to fester. The problem with using God's law for speculation and vain discussion is that it does not promote faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It does not promote love for the brethren. It does not promote unity in God's church. Therefore, Paul says, we got a problem. On the contrary, it does the complete opposite. It promotes doubt, division, disputes, controversy. Using God's law as good as it is, using it improperly is dangerous. We all should be quite thankful for a man by the name of Tim Berners-Lee. Even if that name doesn't ring a bell, you've probably benefited from his creativity, ingenuity, hard work. 
Because if you have used your phone, your laptop, or anything to access the web, to look at social media, to look up directions, any of that, you have benefited from his work. In 1989, Lee created the World Wide Web, and he did this with a purpose of helping researchers get information to other people quickly. This was the original purpose. However, as many of you know, it has been used, the World Wide Web has been used improperly. Berners-Lee himself noted this back in 2018. Rather than transmitting, using the internet and the World Wide Web to transmit helpful information, it was being used to send out fake news, false information. But I want to add to that. I would like to add, not only was the World Wide Web used for fake news, it has been used for cyberbullying. It has been used for pornography and sex trafficking. It has been used for hate speech, none of which were the intended purpose of the World Wide Web. Berners-Lee never intended for it to be used like that. And in the same way, just as the World Wide Web can be used improperly, God's law created by God for an intended purpose can be used improperly. For this reason, not only was Paul concerned, we must be concerned as a church, and not just concerned, we must be committed to using God's law the way he's intended it. As a church, we must reject any use of God's law that is improper and from this specific context that might promote speculation. I'm going to give you an example. We don't use God's word to try to figure out, huh, I've had conversations. I've studied the word. I have an idea when Jesus is coming back. Let me thumb through this text and look for this hidden meaning here. Here's when Jesus is coming back. We reject using God's word for vain, inapplicable discussion. We reject God's law to, uh, we reject using God's law to create novel theory and to trace unknown family origins. This will only create doubt, controversy, and division. God's law was not given to be a breeding ground for doubt, but to be a source of clarity for the people of God. This means that in your Bible studies and conversations about the word of God, as you talk to people, we talk about what has been revealed to us in God's law and in God's word. Because if I were to sit down with any of you tomorrow and I were to hear your struggles what you need from me is not speculation. You need revelation from God about what you are dealing with, about how he has not left you. That's what you need. So we as a church must be committed to this. To fail to use God's law properly will have devastating effects on the life of the believer and the life of the church. So this leads to the next question. Brother Chris, if this be true, what then is the proper use of the law? I'm glad you asked that. I asked that question too. What does Paul say 
is the proper use of the law and how should we use it? From the text, we see that Paul reminds Timothy of what they already knew. The proper use of the law of God is that it be used as an objective guide to warn against and to restrain sin. For Paul, the law is not simply to be speculated. It was to be applied. It was not simply to be discussed, but it was to be utilized to restrain sin. It wasn't to be theorized. It was to warn people of danger. Look what Paul says in verse 9. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. Paul says that the moral law was not laid down for the just, meaning it doesn't exist. It wasn't created for the just. This makes sense, even from an earthly standpoint, right? You know those white signs as you're driving down the street with those black numbers on it that gives a speed limit? That's not written for the nice person driving 60 in a 70. That's for the person with the lead foot that's driving 90 in a 70. That's who it's for. Tax evasion isn't for the person who is willingly handing over all their money to the government. It's for the one ducking and dodging to prevent them from that. The law is for, not for the just, but for the unjust. Now, what does Paul mean here by just? What does he mean by that? So he could either mean those who are ethically perfect, which would knock out everybody in the room. It could also mean those who are justified in Christ. But what does Paul mean by just? Paul means that when he uses the term just, he is meaning those who are seeking to live in conformity to the law through Christ by the Spirit of God. We see that in Romans 8. Paul says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul is telling Timothy this. The law is to be used as a guide for the believer in the life of a believer who are violating those laws. It is to warn people of specific sins who are not living in conformity to the will of God. Look at how specific Paul is in his identification of sin. He is not simply using these generic terms. He says the ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane, those who strike their mothers, murderers, sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers. This is a stark contrast with the false teacher's use of the law. They used it to speculate. Paul and Timothy used it to deal with and to call out real issues that people were dealing with. I appreciate my better half. I appreciate a lot of things about my wife, Sarah. But one thing I appreciate about her is her practicality. If I am about to purchase anything, the question she always asks me is, Chris, you gonna use it? 
If I get on one of these random kicks and I want to try a, a, some new food, she's like, Chris, you going to eat it? Or is it just going to stay in the pantry and expire like a lot of stuff has? <laughs> even when she, sorry, hold on. Even when we were doing spring cleaning, <laughs> don't want to park all myself out right there. <laughs> She would look at shoes or clothes and say, have you worn or played with this in the last year? If not, we gotta do something with it. Things we own are not just to be put on the shelf and collect dust. Shoes are meant to be worn. Subscriptions like Netflix and Hulu are meant to be watched. Things are to be used in real life, she says. Paul sees God's law the same way. God's law is not to be put on the shelf of theory simply to collect dust or talked about. It is to be used for real life purposes. God's law deals with the real questions, the real ethical questions that you and I have about what's wrong with all of this in here, with all that's going on in the world. God's law deals with the real questions that we have. And as a church, we must not just be concerned that we're asking the right ethical questions, but we must be committed to bringing every ethical question that we have, big or small, simple or convoluted, before the law of God and the entire word of God. Look at how specific Paul is in applying these principles. Real life struggles that people were having. Real life struggles that you have, the law can speak to these things. So do you have questions about sexuality and sexual de desires? Do you have questions about how you should respond when your boss does something that goes against your belief? Do you have questions about how you should treat those who have hurt you? God's law is given to answer real questions that you and I have. And as a church, we must be committed to bringing every question before his law and before his word because it will guide us from sin. It will warn us of sin. It will restrain us from sin. It will give us life. Now, all this talk about the law probably got some of us nervous up in here, right? All this talk about behavior. It's like, Brother Chris, we're not leaning over into that legalism, are we? Paul hasn't put a spiritual straitjacket on us, has he? Paul, you're not backtracking on that whole freedom of the gospel, are you? You're not pulling a wool over us and saying how you act means everything, does it? Paul, are you doing that? And I want to say up front, absolutely not. Hear what Paul says. I referenced this earlier in Romans 8, 8, 3 through 4. Paul says this, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. As good as it is, there were some things the law could not do. But God, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not 
according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. If you have faith in Christ, every requirement of the law has been met because of his finished work. The law is not a way to get right with God. The law is not a way to get patted on the back by God. It is not a way of attaining favor. That is not what Paul posits here or anywhere in his letters. So that leads to the last and final question. How does Paul see the proper use of the law? Remember, the proper use is warning and restraining against sin. How does Paul see the proper use of the law relate to sound doctrine based on the gospel? How does Paul see the law of God used properly? How does he see that relate to teaching that is based on the gospel? Why does that matter for us? Paul firmly believes that the proper use of the law and sound teaching based off the gospel are in line with one another. He firmly believes that. Paul would say that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news that God would step towards needy sinners who can't save themselves, he believes that that good news, that gospel, is the norm and that the law God's Ten Commandments, when used properly, are in line with each other. Look at the end of verse 10 and verse 11. Paul says, he's just given that long list of specific sins, and then he says, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul uses the law to identify and call out real specific sins. Then he uses this generic phrase, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, to just clump everything else there. He doesn't want us to think, well, those are the only ones he's looking at. He's like, and anything else that is contrary to sound doctrine. Paul shows that the law and sound doctrine based off the gospel have as its aim the same ethical standard. But Paul continues... And he says this, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This sound teaching based off the gospel is in step with the law when used properly. And this gospel which reveals the blessedness of God which reveals the beauty of God, the majesty of God, the greatness of God, the gospel that reveals the face of God has as its aim the same ethical standard as the law. Paul does not believe that the law is the gospel. He does not believe that. He believes that when it is used properly, they have as its aim the same thing. Paul does not believe that any man, neither do I, will be saved by obeying the commandments because you can't. The law condemns, but Jesus in the gospel justifies sinner. But Paul firmly believes that sound teaching and the law go hand in hand. Sound doctrine based off the gospel and sound behavior are in line with the law of God. They go hand in hand. So for Paul to see a man who lives rightly, he would say that man's theology is on point. To see a man who 
theology is on point and who's living life, he would say those two go together. There is no distinction. When I was in ninth grade, I don't know if anybody knew this, I might be telling y'all a secret. When I was in ninth grade, I was in NJROTC. So I was part of kind of like a military crew in, in ninth grade. Now, that didn't last long, I only made it one year. Y'all know my personality, I, all that structure was holding me down. Can't do that. So you'll see that. But in ninth grade, I remember being in a platoon and we would march to a cadence. We were learning different cadences, you know, halt, stop, march, walk forward. And you would learn all these different uh, uh, rules, commands that the platoon leader would give. And I would remember one particular afternoon, I'm not gonna forget this because I was very embarrassed. Uh, my wife doesn't think I get embarrassed much, but I was sure was embarrassed this time. And ninth grade Chris was like, mm. As you can see, I can remember this. Well, we're, we're marching, left, 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 right. So we're marching. And I forget the term where you would have to go to an angle. You would either go to the right or to the left. And we are supposed to be in accordance with each other. We are supposed to be in step, not just with each other, but with the commands of the platoon leader. And this joker said, left, and you know which way I went. I went right. And I was the only joker. <laughs> The only person in NJ walking this way and the rest of the platoon was going this way. I got out of accord, not only with the command from the platoon leader, but also with everyone else. But unfortunately, this is how we see the law in the gospel sometimes. We see the law going this way and God's gospel going this way. We see them out of accord, but what Paul wants us to do is to see that these two, sound doctrine based off the gospel and the law of God are in accords with one another when used properly. The law is given to warn and to restrain us from sin. For this reason, as a church, we must commit by the power of the Spirit to live a life that both upholds tight doctrine and godly living. How you treat your spouse, what you watch on TV, how you treat the poor are important issues in the mind of Paul because theology, doctrine, and sound living go hand in hand. So as a church, we will not, oh, and we're Presbyterian, so we will have a robust understanding and a robust theology of God's forgiveness. But we will commit to more. We will commit to living that sound theology out with how we treat those who have hurt us. We will have a robust understanding of God's view of justice but we will seek to live that out as we do our taxes and as we treat those who are hurt and marginalized. To fight sin, to care for the poor, to fight to love your wife is not skiing down a slippery slope of liberalism. It is wedding together 
biblical doctrine with sound living. We do this not to earn God's favor, but we do this because we are loved by him. Law and gospel are not at odds with one another. Neither is gospel and good works. The law and sound teaching based off the gospel, though different in salvation, have as its aim the same thing, holiness in the life of God's people. The law is good apart from how we use it. Whether we use it poorly or properly, the law will forever be good. But God has given his law for a purpose. And that purpose is to guide you and to guide me and to restrain us from sin. So as we seek to pass the faith on to the next generation, let us commit to three things. Let us commit to using God's law as he intended. Let us commit to bringing all of our ethical questions before his law. And let us seek to marry healthy and sound teaching with healthy and sound living. In committing to these three things, we position ourselves to faithfully hold on to truth and to faithfully pass on the faith to the next generation. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for your law. It is good. Help us by the power of your spirit to use it properly in a way that is in accord with sound teaching that is based off the good news that you came and saved sinners. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.